If we're to look at the four Gospels as we look at them sort of from a traditional perspective, you have a guy that may be writing down the most of the events while they're taking place. That would be Matthew. You have somebody who is interviewing secondhand, if we're going to take Mark from a traditional perspective. <clears throat> you have somebody who's taking things third and fourth hand, even in some cases, gathering all the information like a journalist. That's Luke. And you have somebody who's writing the information from first hand, but 60 years later. And they're all so beautifully, perfectly right with each other. I love that. That God could take very, very unique perspectives in camera angles, not just in their presentation, but also in regards to the time periods and then the manner in which they're written. That just is fascinating. So you take a guy who Jesus would say at the end of the Gospel of John, it doesn't matter if this guy lives until I come back. And John himself says, well, you know, it isn't that he said that that was what's going to happen. He goes, but... Obviously, the crazy people, they, you know, they're going to make up their own things. He just said, what does it matter? And that, you'd start to wonder. And, of course, that was genuinely what a lot of people believed. And so John's in his 90s, which, I remind you, is an extremely rare thing in his day. Now, I mean, you go back a couple thousand years, people lived a lot longer. But in John's day, the average guy lived to 55. So <clears throat> it's quite an accomplishment. And so they, according to... Uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs and other historians, they would say that they tried to boil him alive in oil, the mission did, and they couldn't kill him that way, so they just sent them off. You know the joke, he was the first friar. Uh, anyways, and, uh, and so they sent him off to this penal colony, this island that was this nasty little bag of rocks called Patmos. It was one of 5,000 islands in between Italy and, and Greece. And <clears throat> there he is, and, and if you were John, would you kind of wonder come on, man, I'm in my 90s and I'm being shipped off to this nastiest, like, barren rock land, you know? And yet, he gets two of the greatest things, and I do like this, God incapacitated John so he could write two of the most important, if not five of the most important books. <clears throat> the book of Revelation, of course, and the Gospel of John. And I do like the fact that John could have had, John could have just been the pastor of this gigantic church. He could have been a massive church planner. He could have been a whole lot of things, and he wasn't. And God instead decided, well, I have, I'm going to change the world in a different way through you, Johnny. I'm going to use you to write things that are going to touch people. And I think that's really, really cool for John. You know, um, We know, of course, him and his brother is being called Boanerges, which is translated Sons of Thunder. Which gospel are we going to get, which is translated Sons of Thunder? Do you remember? Mark, excellent, yeah, because that's the one written for that. Beautiful. That's going to come in handy later. We know that he is <clears throat> a fiery character. I mean, I hear Sons of Thunder, and I think, what a great name for, like, a WWE guy, or a couple guys, you know, with their big heads. We're going to take you down. So that sounds like to me. And then you look at him in the characters, you kind of really get that idea. We know he was a fisherman. We know that he was the guy with his brother that when they tried to go through Samaria, they said, do you want us to call fire down and just fry those guys? Ironic for a guy that's going to get fried in oil, um, you know. And it just, it's just a fascinating thing. But here's the thing that really strikes me, because John was the, was the second book that I ever actually started just straight reading through uh, and trying to memorize in Greek. The first was First John, by the way. And, <clears throat> and I started to notice something. John only really uses roughly 600 words in all of the Gospel of John. Do you know that? Do you know that when you were about four years old, you had a larger vocabulary than that? Now, that's brilliant to me. 
So you could take someone with, in the simplest sense, a very limited vocabulary and use him to go against this, the most intellectual cults of the day. I don't think it was John's primary uh, objective, but I do think it was, it was definitely concerted. And that is that in, during the days of John, there was a strong movement towards Gnosticism. Gnost, by the way, you're aware, two words for Zeno, Heidel, and, and, and Gnosko. And <clears throat> like agnostic literally means ignoramus. I don't know what it means. And a Gnostic was somebody that said they had divine personal experience and that divine experience meant you were really only good if you were going to be in their club. The Jehovah Witnesses have a very strong Gnostic bend, by the way. We have a very distinct, specific knowledge that's exclusive to our club, and unless you're part of that knowledge, which in their case is including their understanding of how to say God's name, um, then you're, you may not even be saved. And that was what the Gnostics were. And, and by the way, there were basically two basic points. Uh, I don't want to preach their doctrine, but here's the basic of it. Everything that you can see is evil. Everything that you can't, and temporary, everything that you can't is holy and eternal. And you can see how this kind of stuff slips into the church. Because it takes a concept that's scriptural and then goes whack with it. Now, it all depends on what side you lean on. <clears throat> if you knew that everything was going to be evil, that you focused on everything physical as evil, you would try to beat that into submission. And thus was the Gnostics. People like Marcus Aurelius, these people who, what they were trying to do, and, and people like they'd self flagellate. You ever see them? They'd have these like little whips and they'd beat their backs with it. A lot of that happened in Ireland, where um, there were places up there that were sort of extreme Catholicism went that way. And the idea was we need to submit all physical, and the way they saw that in themselves was through emotion. So to this day, a person that seems to be very lacking in emotion is called a Stoic from that term. I dare say both of these guys could be called Stoic in America. Wouldn't say that of you. Uh, <clears throat> you know what I'm saying? But then, so you're focusing, hey, I mean, look at, let's, if we're going to deal with this, let's deal with it, let's conquer it. On the other side of it was the guy that was, his name, by the way, <clears throat> excuse me, um, was that he would say, well, but everything that's untouchable and unseeable is holy. So what difference does it make? When, uh, so there are people who were, were leading this kind of other group of people, and, and they were kind of saying, and why can't I even think of the term? What's wrong with me? Um, when they talk about people who are kind of given over to pleasure, they use this guy's particular name. But it's with an EU. Why can't I think of it? Um, Euphrates, Eucharist, none of those words. Anyways, I'll come to it and I'll scream it out in the middle of this somewhere. But basically, his whole thing is, well, but if everything's going to be holy, you can't touch. Why don't we just party it up? And what difference does it make? He emphasized on the other side of it. So what you have on this side was people that were having wild, crazy, drunken orgies, but then saying it's not going to affect the soul because that's eternal and it's going to be holy anyways. you know. And on the other side, there was a guy that, I mean, they were just very extreme. But they were both Gnostics because they both claimed they had the same knowledge and it was where they applied it. Uh, and with that, John will definitely go after that. But there's an extremely Jewish bend to the Gospel of John. As a matter of fact, you can miss it, but do you know how Peter gets into the courtyard to deny Jesus? John's the one who gets him in there. And John gets him in there because he's known by the high priest. All right, so John is known by the high priest. 
and that's kind of fun to know. And he has a fantastic understanding of Passover, and that is really, really fundamental in this. Uh, John is going to take the liberty of, take, of, I mean, of all of the most daunting challenges, praise God the Holy Spirit's doing the writing, this would be the scariest for me. Presenting Jesus as God, you know. I mean, presenting him as a man, you can relate to that. Presenting him as a servant, you can ideologically relate to that. But presenting him as God, you got to, I mean, and all of them, of course, the Holy Spirit's doing the writing, but that would just freak me out. I'm like, oh my goodness, I have to present him in that, you know. Um, anyways, um, is the idea of somebody that gives himself over to hedonism. You know, today they only use the term in regards to somebody like an Epicurean, somebody that eats at the finer dining places is kind of the idea. Uh, but anyways, Epicurus was on that side. And he was, again, John is, John is writing to a group of people that on one side clearly must have some form of Greek bend to them. Because he's clearly going after Gnostics and that is a very Greek mindset. And all it is, we've talked about dragging the old guy over who you are, letting, trying to get, slapping a coat of Jesus on you uh, instead of letting Jesus become the center of your universe. And so in a situation like this, the Greeks who, by the way, and the whole idea of, the concept of Greeks was that there was a knowledge that there was a, what's the best word I could say, like a reasoning or a logic that ran the universe. Now we could say like a grand design or, you know, they use terms like that today. But there was sort of a, there was an order, is probably the best word, there was an order to the universe, and if you could lunge in the darkness, maybe you can grab a hold of that, and that would be enlightenment, would probably be the word we would use today. So there was this sort of logic or order to the universe, and if you could somehow grab a hold of it, you would be enlightened. That, and then, so when the Gnostics kind of stepped in and said, well, there's two parts to that. There's the physical and the non-physical world. People grabbed a hold of it and went, well, that's it, if that makes sense. And what John does is he clearly addresses that right from the beginning when he says, Enologos, Enologos, in the beginning was the word or the logic or the order. He's going, that what you've been looking for? Enologos, but was with, literally with the God. And that order was God himself. And in, in the gospel, or in the book of Acts, when Paul is trying to reason with the Athenians in Mars Hill, and he's kind of really kind of trying to talk their talk, but he's sacrificing the gospel in doing so, he says, the guy kind of put it out there with hopes that you would grasp or grope for this truth and find it, versus God putting it actually at you. And what he tells us is, that what you've been looking for, that it brings enlightenment and is the order of the universe is God himself that he uses in three specific words all starting with the L and that is light, life, and love that will ultimately be the encapsulation of all of this and he says that order that reasoning behind the universe became a human being for us to watch and look at and touch and hear he goes you really want you're trying to reach out in the darkness to grab a hold of this just watch Jesus. You'll get all that you're looking for in that. And I love, what I love is, like we were kind of talking about earlier, if you were to sit down with John and you wanted to try to talk about the trying to gain ground on peripheral issues, he would have, because just the kind of guy we get from Scripture, he would have told you to shut up and let's talk about Jesus. You know, and I love that about John. He was also an extremely 
human guy. And one thing you get in the Gospel of John is that there was some form of competitive animosity between him and Peter. Now, I'm not calling it sinful. I'm calling it a couple guys that were kind of like brothers. They, by the way, they were business partners. We get that from Mark, which would make sense to focus on servanthood, that Peter, James, John, and Andrew were business partners. It appears as if Peter was kind of the CEO of the fishing business, which must not have been a very fruitful business because they never caught anything without Jesus in Scripture. But, but in that, um, let me give you a couple examples. I mean, the natural things is, Twice, John's going to tell you that when Mary tells them that Jesus is actually raised in the tomb, that they both ran there, and exclusive to the Gospel of John, John got there first. And he goes, and then Peter, trailing behind, and there I was, and I got there first. And you just hear a guy that could have been called a son of thunder telling you that. But I find unique to the Gospel of John, he's going to let you know it was Peter who cut off <coughs> Malchus, the high priest's servant, the servant of the high priest's ear off. You need to know that was Peter. And of course, because he's known to the high priest, he also knows the name of this guy, Malchus. But you know what What I found really interesting is, and I didn't until this time around, and this is what makes these kind of things fun for me, please, please, let's keep doing it for the reason, if no other reason, I'm getting so blessed by it. As I never realized, I never really gave a thought, well, what did John leave out? And there are two things I found specific. One is, that when Jesus comes walking on the water and Peter walks on the water, never records the whole Peter walking on the water thing. Gets the whole story, never puts Peter into it. Now, again, it's still the Holy Spirit writing it, but I just can't help but laugh as I see that. But the other one is, unique to the Gospel of John, when Peter whacks off Malchus's ear, John does not record Jesus healing and putting the man's ear back off. And can you just see a guy doing that? And he whacked off his ear. Now let's move on. And you can see Peter going, uh, uh, and Jesus did put it back on. And it's, there's just something, that just makes me like him. You know? It makes me like him because he's got flaws. And he's like, I mean, John's just a guy that's covered in warts in beautiful ways. And that's really, really sweet to me. Does that make sense? You know? And so John's not going to record, by the way, the whole, you know, well, anyways, you want me to call down fire on those guys? He's not going to record that. But he is going to record Peter. Anyways, and Peter's saying, well, what about this guy, Jesus? And Jesus is going, hey, wait a minute, it doesn't really, it's not the point, Peter. Yeah, that's going to be in the Gospel of John, too. Okay, does that make sense? Now, uh, the book is, it is, in the simplest sense, and I kind of put this just to kind of make it easy on you guys, I, I, had fun putting this together because I'm like, I love at-a-glance things. Um, and that should be on the back of this. Yeah. Um, because I just kind of like looking and going, oh, yeah. In the book of Exodus, chapter 3, when Moses says, who should I say sent me? God says, I am. Tell him I am sent you. And, of course, we're like, you are what? You're God. That's clear. But that seems to be unanswered throughout the entire Old Testament, except perhaps Ezekiel chapter 30, for when God says, I'm the good shepherd. It's important to note, since John takes the task of recording Jesus as God, he will answer it with seven distinct I am statements. And you will get them exclusively in the Gospel of John. Matter of fact, again, 92 to 94% of all of the Gospel of John's unique material. But since he's writing... 50, 40 years after everybody else. I mean, again, the Holy Spirit's doing the writing anyways, but it would be clear that you'd know, well, I don't have to cover that. That's been covered thrice. 
And one of the things I kind of, that's part of the fun of reading the Gospel of John is you go, wow, with that much unique material, you almost go the other way and go, well, what things did he choose to record that were in the other ones? Like the feeding of the 5,000. I'm like, that must have been ridiculously profound. I don't think of it as one of the greatest miracles to me until payday. <laughs> then it actually does. But every one of them was, it's like, wow, this reflects the godhood of creation. It reflects, you know, the manhood of a person being understanding the need of hunger. It, it shows the servanthood of a man serving that great need and a king that's willing to make sure that his, his kingdom is fed. I'm like, wow, I love the fact that that really meets, it's, it's a perfect roundabout for all of those things. Does that kind of make sense? Now, unique to this, by the way, because John is going to play the important role of peripathetic in regards to a Greek mind. He's going to record seven distinct, not exclusive, but for the most part, but distinct miracles. Now, that doesn't take a brilliant person to go, huh, seven unique claims, seven distinct miracles before his resurrection. There will be one afterwards, and there will be another miraculous catch of fish. But then I start to go, well, wait a minute. That would appear to me to be that there would be a distinct claim and a distinct miracle to back it up. A distinct claim, a distinct miracle to back it up. You, by the way, I find interesting that most of the miracles happen in the first half, and a lot of the claims happen in the second it's like he does the miracles, for the most part, first, other than we'll get things like John 11, where they kind of happen right in hand in hand, uh, and they butt in in John 9. Uh, but it is important to note, I think he just really wants you to see these things so that when he brings the point home, you go, oh, yeah, I get it. So then I have to start asking, and this is how I want to kind of conclude this part when we get to going straight through the text, because we won't be developing as much as we have in the last few. Um, is that I would like us to kind of go, okay, let's lay out those seven I am statements and the seven miracles and see if we can say, well, which miracle do you think best suits this, if that makes sense. Okay, does that sound fair? Um, so, by the way, so who would I say that he's writing to? I might dare say Hellenized Jews. And those are people who are Jewish by tradition or by bloodline, but have a Greek influence to their life. Because he writes from both perspectives. I might say Jewish people who have, in essence, embraced some form of Gnosticism or are struggling with it. Like the Epicureans. <sighs> All right. So, let's talk about a few... Uh, Lord, again, just open up your word in this overview. Make it beautiful and, and reach us in this. And just thank you, thank you, thank you. Amen. The lines we have are for the I Am statements. The blue that you can see there, by the way are for um, are the miracles. Now, tell me about the beginnings for a moment. How does Matthew begin? Genealogy. The genealogy, right. The, the um, genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Takes us from David. How does Mark start? Excellent, with John the Baptist and Jesus' ministries. Yeah, it starts with ministry because it's a servant. How about Luke? Uh, yeah, how does the servant start? Or how does the servant start? At his service? When does a human being start? Yeah, right. I mean, we're not talking about conception. We're talking about, yeah, he's, this is his coming out. So, we get that. And actually, it's fair to say, it's even before the birth, but it's 
the situations of the birth. Right? So where would you start with God? The beginning of time. Because the only guy that was there then was him. In the beginning was the word. The logic, the reasoning, the order of the universe. That was there in the beginning, which every Greek mind would go, here, here. And that order was with God. They would still hear, here. But the moment you're like, and that order of the universe was God, that's where the ban falls out the window. And he goes, so? That's a pretty dangerous claim. John is not... And this just sounds like John. He is not one of those guys that's going to spend... You know, you know those kind of people that they want to tell you something and it's going to take them a half hour to get it to you? You know, like, you know, and it's like in the half hour, it's kind of like a doctor and he's got to rub that rubbing alcohol before he puts the jab in. But if you do it for a half hour, it's going to be raw. Right? And they're like, you know, you're a really good person. You've got, all these, you've got these good qualities. You've got lots of good... Just tell me what you need to tell me. Then give me the nice stuff afterwards. You know, well, John's not going to want to be, it's like, John, what are you writing about? He's God. You're going to get that in the first couple of verses. So you're not going, oh, I wonder what John's writing about. He also tells you why he wants to, because at the end of this book, he says, by the way, there are a myriad of other things in which Jesus did that, by the way, I didn't write down. He goes, to be honest, I don't think all the libraries of the world could hold all of this, at least in his name. He goes, but these were written that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing in him, you would have life in his name. John goes, if I could have what I want, you would really believe that Jesus is the Christ and that in believing, you would have life in his name. The word believe, infinitely greater in this, collectively, more in this than you're going to find in the other three. Believe is a very, very important term for him. And that makes sense. Now, by the way, Luke also makes clear why he wants to write his, and he tells us that at the beginning. He tells us that you would know for certainty the things in which you believe. He was writing to Theophilus, and Luke says, hey, by the way, I'm writing this so that you would know that what you believe is actually the real deal. I get that. So, we start with that. Y'all with me? So, the words manifested, quick side note, it says that, again, we'll, lead, we'll read life and light, predominantly in the beginning, and we move our way to love by the end. Uh, which, by the way, it's important to note that, um, that it says that in him was life, and that life was the light of men. It's life, and then light, and then it's love. And it should be in that order. Christ comes to give you life, and when he gives you life, then you start to see clearly. And as you start to see clearly, you start to love. I like that. Now, but it tells us in him was life, and that life was the light of men. And it says that that light shone in the darkness. Every Greek mind is going to agree with that, he says, but the darkness could not, katalambano, could not overcome it. And it is a wrestling term. It literally means, lambano, lambano means to take, to grab a hold of, and kata means according to. There are two different terms in regards to grab, and you've heard that. One's para, which means beside, and then there's kata according to. Now, when it's para beside, it's to hug someone. To receive someone. Oh, they may grab you and they may grab you strong, but you know somebody that you don't feel weird and it's not awkward, and they just give you that big hug and you just kind of get engulfed. And uh, it's like that would be the term we see, for instance, the father with his son, when his son is returning. And we see that with Christ. Uh, on the other hand, the term kata, according to you, now you're, you're grabbing a hold of someone according to something you have in mind. And that's a wrestling term. 
the idea is you're grabbing them, and you're probably aware. You're, do you know what the word gymnast, like gymnasium, means? Well, now we're going to get... It means naked, because <laughs> just to make life nice. So when you're like, hey, we're going to gym class, yeah, a little uncomfortable with that. Because that was the place where guys shaved themselves, covered themselves in oil. I mean, Dan winced, by the way, at the shave part. I just want you to know that. I'm sorry. He's, he'll be here in a couple hours. Um, but then they covered themselves in oil, and then they try to wrestle each other. And why would they cut themselves in oil? So when you try to get over there, they kind of pop right out because they're all greasy. Interesting. That term, by the way, was the term when we read that a person's to be above reproach. It's actually that term. The idea of it is that the enemy can't get a good handle on you. Not that you're to be greasy. You're just supposed to live the kind of life that he doesn't have anything to get a hold of. Well, when it says that light shone in the darkness, but the darkness could not, and it says could not comprehend, could not behold, or could not overcome it, it's this word, and the idea of it is darkness could, I mean, I would say as a competitive fighter at a time, darkness couldn't land a punch. Darkness couldn't even get a hand on him. And the idea of it, and it's important to note, is darkness will never be the overcomer of light. It will only be the absence of it. That is fundamental. So when someone says, wow, London, isn't that a dark place? And I'm like, well, not as long as we're there. Because you're the light of the world. Nobody has like a dark torch. You know, it's like it's too light in here and they turn it on and all of a sudden everything gets darker because light overcomes the darkness. Now, fundamental. So light came and the idea of it is light came and it's the dominant. As long as light's in this thing, light's going to win. So, John the Baptist comes and we see the ministry of come and see. By the way, it's a very John thing. Come and see. Where, and to the, you know, there are two disciples to follow. One's Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. It's fairly easy to assume the other's John. Although he doesn't, by the way, he doesn't call himself uh, John in this. It's like, he, oh, he makes very little mention of himself by his name. And so, you know, well, where, and Jesus, like, and I love it, he turns around and the first thing he says to them is, well, what are you looking for? I think it's a great question for Jesus to ask any of us. What are you really looking for? And I'm like, well, where are you staying? And I love Jesus' answer. He would have said, idiots, you guys know from Scripture that I'm going to be... He's like, why don't you just come and see? And there's that invitation. Interesting, because when Johnny will write Revelation, Jesus will say the same thing again. Why don't you come on up and see this? Come on. I'm at home now, Johnny. Come on and take a look for yourself. I love that about him. And what's interesting is that becomes contagious. Jesus finds Philip. He says, come on, Philip, go find me. Philip finds Nathaniel. And Nathaniel goes... Well, well, who is he? I think we found the Messiah. Who, who is he? Well, he's Jesus of Nazareth. And he goes, what? From where? Come on, really? Can anything good from there? And he says, what? Well, let's not argue. Just come and see. Right? Kind of get the idea he was learning that from Jesus. Mm-hmm. And I love the fact, think about this, emphasized in the, Jesus, in the God side of Jesus, if you will, is a come and see person. Aren't you thankful for that? It's like emphasized perhaps in, this, in the servanthood is follow me. Just come follow me and observe. But for God, it's like, why don't you just come and see for yourself? Well, with that, we get our first miracle in chapter 2. What's the first miracle in the Gospel of John? Almost everyone seems to know it. Water to wine. By the way, it's important to note, you'll never get that in another Gospel. And of course, who can turn water into wine but God? By the way, God turns water into wine every day. You're aware of that? He just uses a more natural process. Hmm. What does he put in between water and wine? 
Yeah. And what do they grow on? Vine. On a vine. Water goes through a vine to become wine. Hmm. Interesting thought, isn't it? Yeah. I'm already peppering the meat before I cook it. <laughs> so, all right. Now, people love this one. For, for lots of, usually for lots of personal reasons. But I would like to say it's imperative to know what Jesus did as an introduction. And it's also imperative to know if you know what a Haggadah is, which is, careful how I say that. Um, Scott, he's, anyways. Uh, the Haggadah is an order of Passover. And one of the things you do is you mix the wine. Why do you mix wine? Dilute it. You dilute it. Yeah, you dilute it. Because the purpose isn't to get, pe- get people pickled. The purpose in it is to give people something to drink. That's red. And uh, it symbolizes joy, and there's a lot of other aspects to it. But consider the fact that if you looked at the entire book of John, where, by the way, remember we talked about the focuses, King of the Hill in Matthew, the multitudes as a servant in Mark, the table for um, for Luke, because as a human being, tables are important, and uh, where you feast, and then it's where you eat, and then here it's going to be Jerusalem, and specifically the Passover. And that's why I can't even say, you know, when you talk about, well, Galilee's the focus, is the major portions of Mark, uh, Matthew and Mark, uh, and is where the walk down is in Luke. I can't even say that you can find anything that's very distinctly uh, Galilean, because he's constantly making trips down to Jerusalem for the feasts. It's like there's it's like find a chapter find a chapter where he isn't making a trip down and you're finding a fairly unique thing in the gospel matter of fact by the time you get to chapters 12 and 13 Jesus is already there we're halfway through the book and the rest of it's in Jerusalem that should tell you something well until the last chapter where he's going to meet the boys up north now the whole point of it is is that one of the first things you have to do when you start preparing things is you mix the wine and by the way how do I know that the wine doesn't get fully fermented at a Passover, because when it does, it produces yeast. And if it produces yeast, because yeast is part of the fermentation process, if it produces yeast, it's not allowable at Passover because you can't have anything with yeast. Does that make sense? Just an interesting thought. It's why when we have Passover, well, we would do this anyways for people with addictions to keep it out. We make sure it's grape juice, of course. But, uh, well, it's all grape juice. It's just what how young or old it is. But the two things you do to start things is you mix the wine and you drive out the leaven. That's called chemetz to this day. I mean, today they do it with a feather at the end of it all. They find a little bit and they put it at the doorpost and they do it with a feather. That's how important it is to... But the idea of it is you make sure that the leaven is far from the house because if, if the house has any leaven in it, then it's not fit to have Passover. Now, why is it important? Because the two things that happen in chapter 2 is Jesus turns water into wine and then he drives out the money changers, and that's specifically the term that's used. Why? Where is he driving the money changers out of? The temple, which, by the way, is his house, because it's God's house. And God is driving out the leaven of those because he's getting ready for the Passover. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's kind of fun. I'll try not to develop that too much, but it's fun to know this kind of stuff, because this is the kind of stuff I'm like, oh, this is cool. <laughs> then you start inviting guests. And we say near and far. That's an important term. 
nearby the way that would be people that might be religious leaders, for instance, or people that would be very clearly and overtly Jewish. So what do we have in chapter 3? Nicodemus shows up. He's about as near of a person as you can get. Not only that, but he's not only going to be a Jewish leader, but he's going to be a believer by the end of this. That's fundamental. Chapter 4, what do we get? A Samaritan woman. That's pretty far. That's about as far from Jewish and still relatively being Jewish as you can be. That would be like, I'm, I believe I'm, an, I'm 116th, I believe, American Indian, Cherokee. I have a great aunts and so forth that are full on. But I think, I can't remember, whatever the, whatever the percentage is, I'm one percentage off, one degree percentage off of getting funding from the government to go to university. I mean, I was full right anyways, but it was, would have been nice, you know. Uh, what would I have done with it? The whole point of it is, it's like, well, it's close, you know. But technically you are. And that's how, of course, there's a lot of reasons we could develop another idea about Samaritans. But it's beautiful that he gets both. Which, interestingly enough, takes us to our second, um, our second miracle. Now, we have no I am claims yet. Does that make sense? So we, what we have is, and again, I'm just trying to walk through this quickly to get to the clarity of, our simple, of, this, of these simple things I think John would want to teach us if he were sitting here. It probably would be louder, by the way, my take on John. And then there is a nobleman's son. How do I know that this nobleman's son is not Yerus that we see, for instance, in the other ones? Well, there's a couple of reasons. It was, he had a daughter, and he was in Capernaum. This is a man who has a son, and he's in Naim. I'm sorry, he's in, um, what is it with me today? He's in Cana, because it's the second miracle that took place. Interesting, John even tells us, the first miracle that John recorded, and the second one, took place in the same place. So he's like, this is my second recorded miracle, guys. Note that. you know. And it happens to be a man who has lost his son. And Jesus, which means that father cannot get to his son. His son is gone. And the only way he's going to get his son back, the only way he's going to get his son back is with Jesus. Did you get that? Remember that. That was centurion. Is that a different one? No, that's the nobleman's son. The centurion's a different one altogether. Because it was for him, it was a servant. Okay. So, so beautiful, the intercessors. That's a, that'd be a quick study. I should do that. Like on my own time. Is how many people intercede for someone else in the Gospels? Right, you have you have Yodos, and you have this nobleman, and you have the centurion. So we're well on our way. So, first miracle turns water into wine. By the way, it's important to note. By the way, it was six jugs that were supposed to be used for washing, and in the, they were they were used. These were the things to make things clean. And he says, the first command he gives is fill them with water. What does that tell you? They were empty. That which was supposed to be making clean wasn't wasn't making anything clean it wasn't there it was interesting because it was that which was to make clean would turn into that which would be, bring joy and where at a wedding of course man you, you lose the relationship none of this will make sense okay so water to wine our first one a guy getting his son back and no other way would he get his son back except through Jesus fair enough alright and that takes us to our third miracle Chapter 5. In Jerusalem, near a sheep gate. Why does he tell us that? 
Why is it important near a sheep gate? Because if there's a sheep gate near Jerusalem, and we'll talk a little bit more about it elsewise, it's why would you keep sheep near Jerusalem's temple? They're going to be sacrificed. Yeah, you set aside you set aside your sheep for Passover. That's right. You're saying interesting. Should it surprise us what John tells us? Uh, John the Baptist. Remember that whole he'll baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Not recorded in John. That's not the point. This is my beloved son. Remember this, you, beloved, and whom, you. Not recorded in John. Not the point. In John, this is the Lamb of God. Takes away the sin of the world. Makes sense in the Passover, doesn't it? You can't have a Passover without a lamb. Now, in Jerusalem, near the temple, there is a sheep gate. And those poor sheep are just, they have no clue because they're dumb, because they're sheep. They don't have any idea that they have this special little mark on them. And that special little mark on them says, you done. <laughs> and they're like, hey, Bob, nice birthmark. Hey, Hal, nice birthmark. Yeah, no, no, I got it from the priest. Oh, the priest thinks I'm special. Hey, me too. <laughs> Meanwhile, on this other place, there is this place, and there are also a lot of other animals all put together in the same place. Also not smelling very good, by the way. And this is a group of very sick people. Huh. You see the two between them. It is a place that is called the Pool of Bethsaida. Chesed is the word for mercy. Bet means house. The house of mercy. And then we read this crazy thing there. But he gives us a lot of details. As a matter of fact, he gives us more details about this place than he does most anywhere else in all of the Gospel of John. John must be quite familiar with it. He says there were five porches there. Why would there why would it be so important how many porches there were? What difference does it make how many porches? Unless you're Jewish. Because you ask a Greek person out there, hey, I've got five or something, and then oh, no, oh my goodness, you have five. Unless there's like four of them and they're thinking, I get the extra. To a Jewish person, the moment you mention five, where does their mind go? Yes, the Torah. The Pentateuch. We call it that because it means five books. You do know, maybe you don't, that it's actually one just big book. Do you know that the way that a, a Hebrew, a, a Jewish person would call the first book, they wouldn't call it Genesis. They would call it Bereshit. Do you know why? Bereshit is the first word of the first book. You ever see those old hymnals where they actually have the first lines actually the title? Mm-hmm. Kind of like that. Do you know that the next four books all start with the word the? Do you know what that means? And. You have the first book and then the next book's and this. And the next book and this. That's why you can look at it as one collective thing in five parts. Does that make sense? Now, it tells us that there's this crazy thing, and we want to jones on this. Then an angel comes down and stirs the water. And the first guy in, he's made well. well that sounds really great. People go, come on. And we, we apologize for this. right? Oh, I'm sure it was like... It felt like that. It was a geyser. Some people like, oh, there's an angel, and they were just so convinced. You know, actually, John says an angel came down and stirred it. 
it's just as weird. It's saying, well, it was a natural geyser and people jumped in and they believed because they were delusional, but their faith saved them. And I'm like, yeah, that's weird. But it's just as weird as an angel stirring the water. Well, why would God do that? Was he setting us up for chapter 5? Perhaps. So in chapter 5, there's a guy, and what's clear is, first ones in get well. You know what that means? That this particular place was not made for the neediest. Let's be honest. And this guy was about as needy as he could be. There was no way he was going to get there. And he had been convinced of it, and he had been there for 38 years. I mean, when do you stop? When do you kind of give up hope? 38 years? And Jesus knows he's been there a long time. We don't read that he's known, he knows everything about him. Now, as God, he would know everything. But Jesus chooses to surrender to only know what the Father tells him to know at this moment, which is a beautiful thing. I think that's kind of fun. Now, in other words, because if he knew everything, we could always say he had an advantage. Though he does know everything, but he, again, he could. He could take that back like he could take back all the power of the universe that he possessed. But he would only do as, as the Father gave him to do, and he would only say what the Father told him to say. That was the beauty of it. So this man's helpless. He is a done deal. Now put all of this together for a moment, because Jesus, because the guy can't come to Jesus, Jesus comes to him, and he asks him a really crazy question. Do you want to be well? Now you'd think, well, duh, why wouldn't I want to be well? Because he has a lot to lose. It's a great question to ask an addict, and to be honest, it's a great question to ask just about, dare I say, anybody from the millennial generation. Probably anyone from any generation, but specifically that. Anyone from an entitlement mindset. Do you know you, you could give up? It's chapter 5, so I use the acronym 5, F-I-V-E, because you could lose, and it's like, I, I just, you lose your familiarity, because this is what you've known. 38 years, it's a lot of time. You lose your identity of who you were. I'm known as the paralytic, you lose your victimization card. And I think it's a huge one. I can't do it because. And you lose every other excuse. The difference is, as a victim, that's what you tell yourself. Your excuse is what you tell everyone else. I'll never be because I am this. He's like, that's a lot to leave behind. You know what? In other words, if Jesus actually healed you completely, you'd have to take responsibility for your life. And there'll be people, I'll be honest, they have no interest in that being the case. So this guy can't get up. So Jesus says, get up. And the power of Jesus is enough, and the guy gets up and he's fine. And of course, that creates quite a stir. But understand this. John wanted us to know, and I remember John, with his understanding of this sort of, and he knows the high priest and all that, this was a man who could not get well at five porches. Do you get it? The law was never going to make this man better. And there was no, the law was not the truth or the way to get him well. Only Jesus was. Does that make sense? Beautiful. Beautiful. Well, what a healing. So from that, what happens, Jesus talks about, and they'll, if you have your Bibles that have those footnotes, it'll say fourfold witness. It's a problem because I see five. You can argue over it if you want. But it, Jesus says, you know, that... Um, he says that uh, John the Baptist testified of him, and he goes, in the very works that I do, they testify of me. And he goes, and, he goes, you search the scriptures, seeing by them that they actually, by them you possess eternal life. And he says, and, and I just love the way that he kind of walks through. He goes, and the Father himself has testified. Clearly he has, even though John didn't record it, because everyone else has already had it recorded. And he goes, and, 
Moses himself, you think, what, that I'll accuse you? Moses is because he testified of me. That's five, which I find perfectly fitting for a guy that was in five places, and Jesus is using five defenses. All of that said, and I go home quickly. I'm trying not to run you over, but it's easy to do here. Then John records the 5,000 said, which, of course, as they have with the others, and then Jesus is walking on the sea very clearly now. The... Um, Two more miracles. Now, if you look at it at this point, of the seven miracles, five of them are recorded already before Jesus makes his first statement. And his first statement is, I am the bread of life. And that's his first I am statement that you fill in in that slot. <laughs> in the simplest sense, I'm the manna. You know. Hey, I'm the manna. Yeah. <laughs> Which is funny because manna literally means, what is it? To this day, they would say, When you knock on the door, and I'm like, What that means is, what is it? Now, I challenge you to take a look at it, because Jesus does not like people just looking for handouts. So Jesus feeds the 5,000. They show up the next day. And they're like, hey, we've been looking for you. Where have you been? He's like, so what sign will you give us today? You know, Moses gave us bread in the wilderness. Do you see what they're doing? They're like, Jesus, that was a great dinner. How's breakfast looking? <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just, I mean, it's, anyone who's ever been manipulated like this, you're like, I have, I know people like this. And, and Jesus is like, well, okay, you really want breakfast? I'm the bread you're looking for. I'm the bread that came down from it. Oh, you think that Moses gave it? Moses didn't give you that bread. God gave you that bread. He said, I'm that bread. Which, by the way, I would kind of go, <laughs> but seriously, not like breakfast, right? <laughs> you know. And so the first thing he says, now, this would be a fairly easy one to connect because if Jesus is the bread of life, what has Jesus just done in the beginning of this chapter as a miracle? He fed 5,000. That's a fairly easy connection between that and being the bread of life, wouldn't you think? Okay. So then we've got all these people who don't want to believe. Jesus is rejected in his hometown. There are going to be people who openly say, what do you think about this? You're nuts. And by the way, in chapter 6, when Jesus will go way beyond it, and he'll push the envelope to the point where he's like, look at it, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you're going to have no part of me. And it says many of his disciples, not just believers, but his disciples walked away and no longer followed him. And again, for what it's worth, John 6, 6, 6, 6, 66. That's just kind of fun. And Jesus never had a greater dropout than that. That's fun. Well, it's not fun. And it was horrible for him. Unique to the Gospel of John. And that's when Jesus then turns and says, will you leave me too? And people say, well, where, where would we go? You have the words of life. I love that. So, but here's where we get, I just, this is one of my favorites in it. Unique to the Gospel of John. The adulteress thrown before Jesus. Chapter 8. Why is that one of my favorites? Because of what Jesus uses this for. Now, of course, I won't develop this a great deal because of, we've already done a lot of teaching on it, and of course Jesus writing in the sand, and everyone wants to say, I know what Jesus wrote in the sand, and my thought is, it's not in Scripture. Anyways. But obviously, according to the book of Leviticus, if a couple's caught in the act, you stone them both. Where's the guy? 
a genuine easy, easy question. The religious leader, she's caught in the very act, and if they're going to yank her from the very act, who knows if she's even dressed in front of him at this moment? Mm-hmm. I don't. It's just maybe because I'm you raised around connivers and that kind of thing, and you kind of think this whole thing was a setup. This was a ruse, and they're just trying to trap Jesus. But there is something that really stands out to me in it. And that is that the, that my savior, my prototype, the person I want to be like, they think they got him because they know that he's not going to break the law. He can't bend on the law. But they also know that he loves the sinner, and they're so convinced that he's a hundred percent in both of these. He's going to have to choose. Do they know that about me? Because they're like, let's face it, it's like if Jesus goes, no, 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 let her go, well, then he's breaking the law of Moses and they can stone him right there as being a lawbreaker. But if Jesus goes, yeah, you're right, go ahead and kill her, well, then Jesus no longer seems to have the compassion and care for the, for the sinner, and that's his whole crowd. People, the reason that people are coming to Jesus is because they know they can come as they are but not expect to stay that way. Because Jesus is constantly saying, go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. So I love the fact they think they got him trapped in it. But what Jesus shows is that the law is not the stone to throw. The law shows us that's the stone that should be thrown at us. And we need mercy. The moment we throw the stone, we think we don't need mercy from the law when we read it. It becomes a weapon instead of a, a, a thing to recognize we are in need. How come... Like, was Jesus not technically breaking the law? By first of all, the people who are responsible to stoner, first are supposed to be the offended party, and second the witnesses. And until they do it, nobody else is to jump in. Okay. Because fundamentally essential to the Jewish mindset is never killing an innocent person. <laughs> Ironic, don't you think? The most innocent person that ever lived gets completely killed. Okay. So it wasn't, it wasn't technically... Like yeah, Jesus said, well, let him without sin throw the first stone. You were right. The law says we should kill her. Well, but I'm not the first to throw the stone anyways. The only person who's without sin there is Jesus. Wouldn't that have been a horrible moment? They all leave, and the woman's there with them, and Jesus then picks up the stone and just starts to throw it at her because he's like, I'm without sin, dude. I could do this. Yeah. That would have been a really horrible moment. You know. But they don't go far. They can't go far, because after that, Jesus turns them and he makes his second I am claim. Don't miss that. It's the only one he repeats this way. And he says, I'm the light of the world. Now, we know he's going to do a great miracle and then say it again. But as far as this woman is concerned, this is about as great of a miracle to her. I'd like you to consider it. When Jesus looks and says, I'm the light of the world. It's in light of the fact that he shows that the law shows us we all need mercy. And I think it's so beautiful because it just reminds me of chapter 5. Where the problem is, every one of us is that lame guy at the pool of Bethesda that can't get up because the only way up is Jesus. The only truth is Jesus in that. Does that make sense? No. Then Jesus will heal a man born blind. And then he'll reiterate I'm the light of the world. Do you get it now? I think it's beautiful. But he doesn't introduce it first 
after healing a man born blind, he heals, he does it first by showing, and I think this is amazing because by the time they're done, the people will say, well, what are we blind to? Jesus, you know, if you didn't think you had no sin, this wouldn't be an issue. He goes, but because you say you have no sin, in a sense, you are clearly blind on this. This is you. This is what you need this. And you were born this way. By the way, why is it so important that he was born that way? Well, apparently it was huge to everyone because everyone's like, we've never seen this. I mean, people that kind of lose their sight, yeah, they can kind of get it back through certain things. Laodicea, by the way, had discovered a bacteria. Well, it had discovered an ointment that actually cured a particular type of glaucoma um, and a sort of bacteria that was forming over the eyes. Uh, fundamental when Jesus speaks, by the way, to the Laodiceans. So there were people that were sort of losing their sight and getting it back. But if a guy was born with no sight, it's fairly possible he may not even have eyeballs. And who can give you eyeballs? Only a creator can do that. I think it's awesome. You with me so far? Because we're almost done with this, believe it or not. So, then Jesus gives us two more of his claims. Now, notice, he's only got one more miracle to do. But he's got a few, he's got a lot more I am claims to make. Chapter 10, he's the gate to the sheep. In other words, and then he says he's the good shepherd. We'll compare that in a moment to chapter 14, but think of it this way. In chapter 10, gate to the sheep in the simplest sense means nobody can get to the sheep except through me. Chapter 14, and no one can get to the father except through me. And he's the good shepherd, which, by the way, they know is a claim to God, because that's Ezekiel 34, left out. He's not a good shepherd. He's the good shepherd. Making sense? Following me? All right. Or as Ruth says, you getting me? And then he raises Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11, and then says he is the resurrection and the life. Boy, you don't have to be brilliant to put those two together, do you? <laughs> And then from chapter 12 through 20, it's half the book in essence. It's in, it's in Jerusalem for that Passover. He's anointed, the triumphal entry. There's the Passover with the foot washing, which by the way is important because there's a washing of hands before you dip. And then Judas is discovered because he dips. And then he says, well, now that he's gone, you guys love one another. And can I just say quickly on that, it's imperative to recognize Jesus did not tell unbelievers to love one another, and he didn't even tell us to love the lost first. Not that he doesn't want us to care for the lost, but he says, and I, and I was like, I don't have to tell you that, but I do have to tell you this, you need to love one another. And I think those diversion things we talked about earlier, they just keep people from loving one another. When we were just saying, as a Christian, when you make something other than Jesus, the thing. Sense. Uh, the moment your, your relationship with God almost fallen off. Just okay. The moment you make your relationship with um, God about any that in it, you're in trouble. Remember the Israelites back in Saul's day saying, You know why we lost that battle? Because we don't have the ark. We can bring the ark here, it will save us. And God's like, Well now you're gonna have to lose because it no it saves you. Well, that's the point. Hmm. Chapter fourteen, I'm going away, but you're gonna have another helper coming instead. Uh, you know, in lieu of me, if you will, the Holy Spirit, the teacher and reminder, and then he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's our uh, third to last statement in that. Or second to last, I'm sorry. I am statement. And finally, in chapter 15, I am the true vine. 
So, and his whole point of that is, so you better stay connected. It's important to note, chapter uh, 14, Jesus says, at the Passover, because he ends it with, arise, let's go. And then chapters 15 and 16 are in uh, route to the garden where he's going to get arrested, which he makes really clear. And I think it's important and unique to John. Jesus went there a lot. The place Jesus got arrested, he'd gone there a lot with them. Why would he go there a lot with them? To make it easier for Judas to arrest them. You know, Judas is like, well, I know where he's going to go after this. He'll be in the garden. So Jesus is there and arrested. Uh, with that then, of course, uh, we have the prayer. Now, the prayer is in the other three Gospels as a king, as a servant, as a man, is in the simplest sense, is there any other way? If there's not, I'll do this. But if there's another way, I really don't want to do this unless there's... Now, when you do something, which is weird, because for this one moment, God's will contradicted God's will. Does that make sense? The man, the man part doesn't want to go to the cross for good reason. The God part, if you will, of course wants to go to the cross to redeem us. Does that make sense? And therefore, what part don't you get in John? That if there's another way thing. That's, well, I should say it this way. It's not the focus. Let that cut pass. And we'll, but the point is, he prays for unity among his believers. His whole prayer is for us in John. And by the way, it even ends with, and I don't just pray for these guys, but for those who will believe long after this. He literally, if you will, prays for us. In the garden as he's about to get arrested, he's praying with us on his mind. Is that crazy? What a God. Arrested, crucified, and I don't want to make little of it, but again, this is the benefit of you reading it first. Then he appears to Mary exclusive first. And then Mary sees something really interesting, unique to the Gospel of John. She sees two angels. Mark talks about one, which would be a servant telling you that Jesus is risen. But there's two, one at the foot and one at the head, or literally one at the head and one at the foot of the tomb of Jesus, Well, where we laid. And why is that such a big deal? You have one angel on one side at the foot, one angel at the other, and in between them is a bloody seat. Does that look like anything else that you've ever heard of in the Old Testament? It's the top of the ark. They call the mercy seat. There's one cherubim on one, one cherub on one side, one cherub on the other, and in between is the bloody seat. Solid gold, in that case, covered with blood during the Day of Atonement, the day where sin is to be atoned. And what does Mary see? She sees something that must look an awful lot like an ark. An angel on one side, at the foot, one at the, one at the head, one at the foot, and the bloody seat between. I just think that's great. Thank you, Lord. Uh, with that then, Jesus restores Thomas's faith, unique to the gospel. John in this. And then, I love this, how does it end? Mm-hmm. How does Matthew end? Excellent. Go and make disciples. Be the ambassador. Mark, how does it, what's the greatest service? Go and do what? Preach. How about as a man? How does Luke tell us? What does a man need to do before he goes? Okay. Yeah, wait. Oh, yeah. Wait for the power of the Holy Spirit. Doesn't that just fit in nicely? So what does John do to emphasize it? God, he restores man. 
Isn't that a great way to end it? He restores man with Peter. Now, y'all with me in all of that? Mm-hmm. I'm liking it. Okay. Take a moment, take a breath, and I'm going to ask you a few questions and see how you do.